This podcast was recorded on March 22, 2017. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Okay, well, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here with my co-host, Sam Lau, today. Hey, hey. Uh, so, Sam and I are talking to Monica Erickson, who's a portfolio manager here in the Global Develop Credit uh, team at DoubleLine. So, welcome, Monica. Thank you. So, Monica, we're going to start off today by starting more on a personal level. Let's not just dump into the markets. Uh, tell us about your responsibilities here at DoubleLine and um, you know, how you got in the investment business. Um, sure. So it was uh, it was a, a long road to get here. Um, I, I think I think the thing that drew me to finance originally was I was my dad's executor at the age of eighteen, and it was um, it was a lot of responsibility, and a big part of it was running the financial aspects of his estate. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, at eighteen, it's a you, big you burden did, to put on someone, right? right? You don't you don't have a lot of um, uh, expertise in and in the area, so I had to learn really quickly. Um, and then when I started school, when I started college, uh, I, I had an idea of what I wanted to study. So from the beginning, my focus was on finance. Um, when I was at school, I got an internship at a money management firm. And at the time, I didn't understand what money management was. I remember my first. <laughs> My first meeting with one of the marketing people, and she tried to explain it to me, and my head was just spinning. Um, but after interning there for two summers, when I graduated from college, I got uh, offered a job as an analyst. So I started right in, two feet first, and um, was an analyst there for 15 years doing convertible securities. Okay. What, what, uh, where did you grow up? Where, where did this all take place? Which city? Well, the the... The schooling part took place in L.A., but um, we moved around a lot. So I was born in New York. Um, from there, we went to Baton Rouge, which is a little okay. different place. And then from there, we went to Mexico, lived there for four years, um, went to elementary school there. And then in fourth grade, my parents decided to put me in boarding school, which is kind of unusual for a nine-year-old. <laughs> so um, at... Uh, uh, in fourth grade, I ended up in a small town called Ojai, which is um, near Santa Barbara in boarding school. Very peaceful. Yeah. Very peaceful. And so you went to college in Los Angeles as well? I went to college in L.A., yes. Yeah. And does it have a name? It does. Okay. You, Do you, are, you, are you proud of it? Or? <laughs> <laughs> well, around here, I, I think we're 50-50 here at yeah. Double Line. Um, yes, yeah, so I went to USC. Okay. Yeah. So you're not embarrassed of USC. I am just, not. I'm not embarrassed of okay, USC. Okay. No, not at all. Okay. It's a great school. So you jumped into finance and you got in the very well known of world of convertibles. Maybe you could explain to our audience what convertible securities are 
and uh, how that leads into working a fixed income shop. Sure, sure. So converts are actually a really fun place to, to get started. They're hybrid security. They're part equity and part fixed income. So um, to, to simplify it, they're, they're like a bond that can convert at some point into the equity of the company. So they have um, characteristics that are bond-like and they have characteristics that are equity-like. So I think it's, for me, it was a great place to get started because it really helped me understand the motivation um, between equity investors and bond investors, which aren't necessarily aligned. Mm -hmm. Um, And it helped me understand why companies might issue debt over equity. Um, And then in addition to that, it was in the early 90s when I started, and it was the beginning of kind of the tech, telecom, internet um, extravaganza, if you want to call it that. (laughs) Um, so I got to see a lot of really interesting companies. WorldCom was a huge issuer into the convert market. Um, there were some, you know, smaller. I, I remember there, were, you know, there was like a handful of of these internet companies that went under that that issued into our market. Um, it was it was a much more active market than it is today. Now the convert market, I think the last time I looked was something like two hundred billion. Uh, in U.S. and then maybe 300 global. So it it is it is definitely. What was it at its peak? For instance, when you're in the heyday, you talk about the extravagance. Yeah, I think in the in the peak and and then in the 90s. So you know, relative to what the other market sizes were, it was about a 500 billion dollar market. Okay, so much larger. So you said you got thrown in feet first into the swimming pool of finance. That's, and, yeah. and um, you know, we, we hear from investors a lot how they struggle to analyze even one sector of the market, whether it's fixed income or equities, and how to think about, you know, asset allocation and things. Maybe you could talk about what you learned in the convert side of having to learn both of those sides of the world simultaneously. Right, right, right. Um, well, like I said, I, I, I think I touched on it, that there is kind of this push and pull between equity and fixed income. Um, and at the end of the day, companies have a fiduciary duty to their stockholders, and they do not have a fiduciary duty to the bondholders. So they are um, incentivized to maximize equity returns and not necessarily maximize bondholder returns. But there's always this balance because if bondholders aren't taken care of, that usually means that the equity holders aren't taken care of either, right? Because if there's some sort of default, by definition, equity holders get wiped out first. So there is that that kind of balance. And I think with what I do now, it helps me understand a little bit more about the motivation that management has in terms of balancing those two um, uh, share classes, if you want to call it that, or stakeholders in in the company. Yeah. So you talk about the, the lack of fiduciary duty of a company to its bondholders. I mean, I, I mean I, that's a powerful phrase that you brought up, and we think about that. So how you know one of the most important things as a bondholder, especially since you focus on the corporate market, is covenants, right? Yes. Uh, those things. So maybe you could walk us through how. This experience on the convertible side and, and understanding that not always the bondholders' interests are 
the things that are uh, what are being focused on by the corporation. How do you, as a portfolio manager and analyst on the securities, make sure that these covenants are adhered to? What do you look for? How are we trying to protect our investors' capital when investing in these fixed income securities issued by corporate America? Right, right, right. Well, I think I think covenants are much more relevant on the high yield side of the market and on the bank loan side of of the market. Um, in investment grade, their covenants are, are very, very limited. And I think um, you, from my from my point of view, I, I look really at what the management of the company has done historically and how they've treated bondholders. And, and maybe back up a little bit. My focus is on the investment grade market, and we've got um, two other portfolio managers in our group that focus on bank loans and high yield, mm-hmm. and they could speak much more to what they're looking for in covenants in, yeah. in that area. But uh, on the investment grade side, um, there might be covenants like step downs and ratings that might be relevant if if it's a cuspier type of credit um, where we are concerned that that you know management may not. Um, adhere to an investment grade rating, so you get compensated that way. And, and uh, but that that would probably be the the largest one. There, um, there's some call protection. We're starting to see um, bonds issued out of banks with for the this the TLAC issuance that they have to do. Can you tell us what TLAC means for our listeners? Total loss absorption. Capacity. Okay, good. You you, you passed that question. Yes. <laughs> yeah. When you use the acronym, you got to define it around here. Really use it. <laughs> um, so there are there are some covenants that that our bank analyst is diving into in that area, but in the investment grade space, it really is driven much more on believing in what management uh, is going to do based on what they've done previously. How's your role, I guess, in, in terms of what your evolution from when you first joined the team? And, and I know your, your tenure here predates our firm here at Double Line with the team. So how has that really evolved over over the last few years? Sure. So I, I did I started at our prior firm with the current team. And when I was working there, I was an analyst working on the same product that I'm working on now. When I came over and in in 2009, I was an analyst initially, and um, I was an analyst for about a year and a half. And after that, I was promoted to portfolio manager and started managing what we call here our regular investment grade accounts, which are kind of our regular duration investment grade accounts. So when you say regular, you mean things that look kind of like the total market. And obviously, it's not an index product, it's very actively managed, but it has characteristics of the broad-based investment grade credit market in the developed world. Correct. And and, and I, I separated out from the low duration product, which we also manage, which, which is an investment grade product. And that's really where we differentiate between the products within our group is the low duration and what we call our kind of regular, quote-unquote, regular product, um, which is more in line with what the, the duration of the market looks like. Um, and then subsequent to that, last year my role changed again with some changes in our group. And at that point, I was appointed head of the investment grade group within our team. And now I 
I have a little bit more responsibility managing people, making sure that analysts are are put in the right place and able to cover the right industries, um, making sure the trading goes smoothly. And in addition to that, I've kept my responsibilities for managing the accounts. So how do you like that? Um, this isn't a job interview question, of course. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, but uh, how do you how do you see that? Because we. We hear this a lot from you know people, especially in the investment business. You get promoted up the ranks, and you mentioned this specifically that now your role includes managing people, right? So when you think about that, and to you know the the analysts out there and the PMs out there, think about moving to the ranks. You know, what kind of advice do you offer them in the differences in the job that you have today versus prior to assume, assuming those roles? Right. Well, I, I love it. I actually I like I like to see people do well, and I like. I like the ability to help them do well. So if I'm seeing someone that's in a role that's struggling and I can see that maybe they would do better somewhere else and to be able to have that conversation with them and have that kind of impact on their work and then therefore our portfolios um, is very rewarding for me. So uh, you you mentioned helping people and um, since I know you well and everything and, and some of the stuff we do here locally... Maybe you could talk about some of your volunteer work. Uh, I know you help young analysts in the CFA program here at the local chapter. Maybe you could tell them about why you do that, what what your roles there are, or roles have been, and uh, some of the philanthropic work that you do there. Sure, sure. So um, the the CFA Society of LA is, is a great organization, and they asked me to help them out. It was initially with a charter recognition dinner, which is a either a lunch or a dinner that the CFA Society of LA sponsors for all the new CFA charter holders. And I started doing that about eight years ago. And it's a fantastic event. Everyone's happy. You know, they've just <laughs> it's unlike, studied unlike, for unlike at least... CFA day, right? When everybody's <laughs> taking the exam, everybody comes right, out just right, depressed, right? right? It's, it's, it's actually... Sorry to cut you off. Yeah, no, no. It's, it was a fantastic way to... to, to uh, to start uh, with the organization, and uh, like I said, you know, everyone's happy. Everyone shows up the day, day of. There's never any complaints. You know, it's a free event for for all the uh, CFA recipients. So I started doing that, and I did that for a few years. And after doing that, they asked me to be on the board, which I agreed to, and I did that for three years. And it's a three-year term, um, and. It gave me the ability to meet different types of people that I wouldn't normally meet in my general course of working. And uh, I went to some really interesting conferences, um, I, again, a little bit outside of the scope that I do here at, uh, at Double Line, um, but, uh, but just really uh, uh, interesting, interesting people to meet. And, it, you know, it does feel good to, to give back. Um, there are young people that are starting out, starting their careers, and I did some mentoring um, for the CFA uh, program early on. And just recently, actually a few weeks ago, I got a call from CFA LA, and they asked me to join the board again, it, this time in a, um, in a capacity as either treasurer or secretary to eventually become president. And I have to turn it down right now because my workload here at Double Line is is pretty full but i did tell them that within a couple of years i would consider doing that and that's an important part i mean just mentoring and giving back and a lot of it you, you know there's a similar type thing that you do here at work as you mentioned as you work with the analysts that you bring in um 
you know, what type of guidance do you give some of these green analysts coming in in, in in terms of trying to set up their approach in the way that they view the market and the way that they analyze the market? Sure. So um, we, we don't we don't necessarily have green analysts, I would say. We've had what we've had is we've had some analysts that have transitioned from asset classes. So we've brought over some equity analysts, some very experienced equity analysts, but they just didn't happen to have experience in the fixed income market. So what I've been doing with them is helping them to get the resources that they need to be able to get up to speed on the fixed income component. I mean, they, they know their companies inside and out. Um, but they just didn't understand completely the the bond component of it. It's like so, reversing the convert market, right? So instead of you know teaching the bond folks about the equity market, it's just like the reverse convertible, actually, right? Correct, correct, correct. And so and they, and they've picked it up very quickly. And it, and part of it is making sure that they have the resources that we have here internally, making sure that they get set up with outside research. Um, just making sure that they get all the information that they need so they can get up to speed on the asset class. Yeah. We've also brought on some some other analysts that have more expertise in the high yield and bank loan market and not so much expertise in the investment grade market. And they, they are different types of markets and you look at them differently. So that's been another area of transition for, for some of from, for some of those analysts. And again, they those analysts have ranged from having at least five years, and we've got an analyst that has 15 years worth of experience. So um, by no means are they you know, just starting out, um, but it's just a, a different asset class for them to be looking at. With regard to the approach, though, how do you, like, now that you're managing the investment grade side of the, the fixed income world, is there a certain approach that you try to have or a framework that you have to, to evaluate you know, the sectors and, and the corporations? I mean, do you look at leverage ratios? Do you have them look at interest coverage? Um, you talked about management earlier, cash levels, debt levels, that type of thing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we have formalized our process over the last eight years. Um, we now have a formal write-up that if any credit is going to go into the portfolio, each analyst has to present on it. And it has things just like you said, we'll go over exactly what the company does. They'll look Mm -hmm. at all of the financials, which will include leverage metrics. It will include cash flow projections. It will include interest coverage. Um, we will look at relative value compared to other securities in the same industry, relative value to other securities in different industries. Um, we'll look at the history of the, the management team, how they've treated bondholders. They'll go through what the, the risks and the opportunities are of the company. And after going through that rigorous process, then a credit could be put into the portfolio. So an overall measure of the, of the corporate health. Of that business, right? absolutely. It's both. It's both. It's both health of of the business and the relative value of the security. So it's valuation and fundamentals. Yeah. So those that follow us know my background has nothing to do with accounting. So I'm very thankful to have Monica and her team be looking at this. So let's change gears into something that I find more interesting. Let's talk about the macro landscape and let's talk about fiscal policy tax policy. Those seem to be the buzz things. So I think of all that and I think about corporate America. People are really focused on corporate tax reform. 
Um, do you have an opinion on what you think uh, will shake out in terms of the administration's uh, view on corporate tax reform? And how do you think about that when balancing the risk of that uh, potential outcome into your portfolios today? Right, right. Um, well, I, I think it's been stated that corporate tax reform is maybe second or third on the list of things to get done. I think the first thing that is going to get done is the repeal and reform of the Affordable Care Act. Um, and that will impact specific industries within the healthcare sector more so than others. I think on the investment grade side, it's probably going to be a net net neutral. Um, I think some of the health insurers will benefit from it, even though they will be losing um, subscribers. I think the, the, the people that they will be adding will be much more profitable. Um, in terms of the tax policies that have been put forth, I think, you know, if an overall uh, tax cut occurs from the current 35% rate to the 20% rate that has been suggested, uh, that would clearly be beneficial to all corporate entities. Um, there is also a discussion of interest rate deductibility going away. If that were to go away, that would clearly hurt more leveraged companies. I think the investment grade space would be okay. And I think actually it could be a positive because I think if that were to go through, the after, co after cost tax of debt would go up. Mm -hmm. And I think that companies would be more incentivized to issue equity over debt. And I think you could see less insu issuance into the investment grade market. So it could be a technically a positive um, for the investment grade market. Yeah. Now, if, if the issuers, let me just think through this with our listeners here. So if the issuers are perhaps more likely, and again, no one knows, it's obviously specific by industry and name, but if they're issuing more equity, doesn't that create a more levered position against the bondholder? Could that ultimately be negative? Or how, how do you think about that? Yeah, no, I actually think it's it's just the opposite. So if if they were, let's say, they're going to go out, what's I think what's there has been a lot. I can step back a little bit. There's been a lot of debt issuance over the last eight years, and part of that is because debt has been so cheap, mm -hmm. right? So if if debt becomes more expensive, either by rates going up or by the interest rate deductibility change, it's going to be more attractive for companies and if they're going to go out and, let's say, build a plant, or they're going to do an acquisition, or they're you know, going to spend money on, on something, instead of issuing more debt, which they've been doing in the past, um, they might go out and actually issue equity for that, which actually helps the credit in the long run. Can you run. explain how that works? Sure. I was baiting you on that question, yes. by the way. Yes, right. Okay. <laughs> Um, how, how that would work is at the end of the day, give us, give us a hypothetical example. So, so you so, have a couple hundred million in debt, you have 700 million in equity, something like that. And you issue another hundred million in equity. How, how does that change your position as a bondholder? Sure, sure, sure. So it's really simple, simple math. So let's say you've got a billion dollars in debt outstanding and you've got a billion dollars of equity outstanding, Right. And if you were to go out and build a, a plant for half half a half a billion half a billion dollars, um, you could go out and issue debt for that, or you could go out and issue equity for that. Okay. If you went out and issued debt, your debt would increase by by half a billion dollars. So you'd be at one point five billion dollars in debt. Okay. And you'd still have the same equity 
amount, right? Right. So at that point, you would have higher leverage on the company, which is not good for the existing bondholders. Right. So the the other way to fund that would be to go out and issue half a billion dollars worth of equity. If you went out and issued a hundred billion dollars worth worth of equity, you'd have one point five billion dollars in equity, and you'd still have the billion dollars in debt. So therefore, you would have a lower leverage company, which is a positive. So for you're bond thinking holders. about the debt to equity ratio. Correct. Right. Okay. Correct. Good. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's and that would be one measurement. There would also another measurement that you would look at is clearly this plant would come along with cash flow, right? Mm-hmm. So if you were looking at a leverage number, your debt to that cash flow mm-hmm. would also be lower if it was issued with debt with equity, right? Yep. How does you mentioned debt to cash flow? How does I don't know if there's a certain type of metric, but how about cash balances on balance sheets, which have been increasing? Does that uh, play a role in the way that you evaluate these lev- so-called leverage ratios? Um, it, it does and it doesn't. We don't give any credit to the cash on the balance sheet because we think that that cash can be used for dividends and share repurchases, which it usually is. It's unless the company has explicitly said that they're going to use that cash to pay down debt, um, we don't give them credit for it. And, and Apple is a perfect example of that. They have over $200 billion of cash on their balance sheet. And, and, and it is offshore, um, but it's there. And I, I've talked to the rating agencies about this and that fixed income investors just do not give them full credit for the two hundred billion dollars, they may give them a partial credit for it, but we don't we don't give them any credit for it. Yeah. Now you mentioned off uh, off the balance sheet or offshore investing. Uh, what is your stance on uh, repatriation? I know that's one of the administration's um, ideas of trying to make America great again is to repatriate cash flows, meaning that um, the corporations which have kept money offshore. Uh, not back in the U.S., to give them some form of tax holiday or allow them to bring it back in the country without penalty. Um, does that factor into your analysis? I mean, you're talking about not giving much credit for things, but could that strengthen the position of these corporations? And what do you think that does to the overall economy, not just as a bondholder? Right. Well, I, I think net-net, it's positive. If if companies were able to bring back, I, there's over a trillion dollars worth of cash sitting overseas that could be brought back. And it, like you said, it is, it is part of the, the tax plan to, I think, and it's part of the, the balanced tax plan, right? So yeah. this, is some, this is one way to offset the lower taxes that they would be implementing, um, where they would get this, the companies would get a one, one shot kind of tax holiday to bring this cash back, but they would also get taxed at let's say 8%, 12% at a lower rate than they would, but yet, yet still they would get taxed. Um, I think I think net-net is positive. I, I don't think that a lot of that cash is going to be used in a bondholder-friendly way. I think um, if history repeats itself, this happened under the Bush administration and companies use the cash to pay pay dividends, pay special dividends, and buy back shares. So I think it would benefit equity holders. I think if there were projects that were on the back burner, they may have more cash to spend on CapEx, but I I don't see that. As we get closer to the uh, my favorite part of the, of, of the segment, the Sherman Says part, there's been something on my mind that I just have to bring it up. It's the, uh, you know, growing up I had a parakeet. I, I think I had three parakeets. I might have had two gerbils, 
And those are the kind of things that I think about um, when I think about pets. But you had a pet leopard. <laughs> Yes. Is that the Baton Rouge in you, or is it, where, 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 where is that? <laughs> that that was uh, that was part of my father. That right. had nothing to do with me. But yes, we we grew up we grew up with a pet leopard, and my dad would say that that was his first child. Um, where are you on the ranking of children? I was second. I have a younger brother, so okay. it was okay. it was all by You're, age. You were se- the second child relative to the leopard. Correct. Okay. Fair correct. Okay. Yes. Correct. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, and my my dad, you know, was it was in the '60s and it was kind of wild times, and my dad was an eccentric guy, um, and uh, he actually happened to have. My mother and he had the leopard when they lived in Manhattan, believe it or not. And uh, <laughs> when they when they moved to Baton Rouge, um, we we brought the leopard along with us, and we brought the leopard along with us when we moved to Mexico. And he had he had a cage outside, and he was allowed in one room. Yeah. And my dad my dad was the only one that could go into the cage with him, and he would go in there and play with him and. Feed him raw steak and raw eggs, and hopefully was, he kept him well fed. <laughs> he yeah. kept him very. He lived to be about seventeen years old, which apparently is very old for a leopard. It just reminds me of those stories you read about. They barge into a place in Manhattan. Someone has a crocodile in, in the bathtub or something yeah. like that. So I guess at least uh, the uh, the positive there is you got him closer. They got the leopard. Was it a male or female leopard? It was a, a male leopard. Okay. So at least you got him closer to his native environment as well. So, um, did you learn anything, um, you know, on, on the leopard subjects? It's uh, Sam really uh, likes to focus on the pets. Um, did you learn anything from risk management uh, from from having a leopard as a pet? Oh, that's funny. Um, <laughs> I, I guess. I guess. I can't. I can't say directly no. <laughs> There's no. I, I would be making something up. There's no okay. direct link. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I, I want to say that's one double line of risk that uh, Jeff Sherman here doesn't really want to cross. You don't want to cross that. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, maybe uh, maybe we could thank you again for coming in today, Monica, sharing your background, sharing some anecdotes, um, and we'll let uh, Mr. Lau do his favorite subject, uh, favorite segment of the show. That's right. Sherman says now, Monica. I think you're. Somewhat familiar with it now, but let's just say that it's a game of word association. I'll give a, a term or a phrase, and you'll repeat. You'll tell me what's on the top of your mind. You know, try not to think about it too much and just rattle it away, rapid okay. fire. Yeah. And then we'll alternate questions. We'll start with uh, Mr. Sherman first, and then we'll pass it off to you, and then back and forth from there. So, Mr. Sherman, free trade, globalization. Earnings. Good. Debt. Good as a bond investor, but not too much as we learned from uh, from Monica today. Wiretapping. Talked about too much. <laughs> Fair enough. Momentum. Factor, but best performing factor in the equity market. All right. Fundamentals. Very important. Buffalo Bills. Jeffrey Gudlock. <laughs> Peppermint. Things horses like. Tater tots. Delicious. Credit risk. Try to manage it. 
And that's all. Okay, well, thanks, everybody, for tuning into The Sherman Show. We'll try to get those down to one word next time back on the topic there. But, again, thanks for tuning in to Monica Erickson, Portfolio Manager here and Head of Investment Grade on the Global Developed Credit Team. Thank you. presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2017, DoubleLine Capital.